This is the Think LA podcast from Los Angeles, the center of advertising, marketing, and media. Thank you for joining us. In this episode, our guest is Mark Miller, co-author of Legacy in the Making, building a long-term brand to stand out in a short-term world. He's the founder of the Legacy Lab, a thought leadership and consulting practice that explores how brands can build modern legacies. And he's also chief strategy officer at Team One, Publicis Group's global luxury and premium brand agency. Having worked for more than 20 years in the communications industry, Mark has become a go-to strategist for global brands seeking relevance, including Lexus and the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company. Mark's thought leadership has been recognized in North America by many of the most significant honors in marketing and advertising, such as the ARF David Ogilvie Awards for Research Excellence, the Jay Shiat Awards for Strategic Excellence, and the EFI Awards for Marketing Effectiveness. Mark's consumer insights research on the global affluent tribe was featured in The Internationalist magazine, which also named him a trendsetter and agency innovator. We're very glad to have Mark with us today, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Mark, thank you for joining us today. How are you? Fantastic. Thank you for having me here with you. It's a pleasure. I have to tell you, this book has been a staple in the Think LA office for a while. So when we had an office, so we're, uh, I'm very happy to have you on the podcast today. If you could tell everybody a little bit about yourself, please. Sure. I'm the uh, chief strategy officer at an agency called Team One uh, with a number of offices, but we're headquartered here in Los Angeles. I'm the founder of the Legacy Lab, which is a unique practice inside of Team One and the author of a book from McGraw-Hill Education called Legacy in the Making. Though if you ask my nine-year-old daughter, she would just say, I'm her dad, and I go to a lot of meetings, which is also true. That's, that's great. Um, so tell me the origin of the book, please. Well, a number of years ago, uh, our team at the agency was working on an initiative, um, on the one hand, for a very iconic automotive brand, and on the other hand, for a very iconic hotel company, hotel mm-hmm. brand. Uh, What was fascinating was the automotive brand was coming up on a milestone anniversary. It was going to be 25 years old, but they didn't know at the time how to make sense of their time, place, and history. They thought that 25 years wasn't very long um, and maybe not worth the celebration because many of their competitors had been around for so much longer. And on the other end of the spectrum was the hotel company that was coming up on a 30-year milestone. And they saw the world from a different perspective. They thought that 30 years old might be too old to celebrate in a world where people had a reverence for everything that was new and novel. And so based on personal passion and interest of myself, along with some peers and our strategy team, just started exploring the topic of brands, uh, ones that would not just survive, but thrive over many years. And we just started digging into it. We spoke to founders of brands, refounders of brands, We spoke to younger brands and older brands and successful brands and failed brands and um, 
before we knew it, we had quite a following and a really nice repository of research that said the key to success to thrive in conditions like this is to look much further ahead that actually long-term thinking was in fact the best short-term strategy. We started publishing that research in Inc. and Fast Company. We were given the opportunity, very thankfully, to share that uh, material in our book from McGraw-Hill Education. And that's how it got started. And that's how we wound up talking here today. That's fantastic. It It's a great book. And I'm I'm always fascinated to flip through it and see the different case studies that you've referred to. You talk about Taylor Guitars, you talk about Wimbledon, you talk about Girls Who Code. Tell us more about how you see brands approaching the concept of legacy today. It, it seems everything moves so fast and is forgotten just as fast. So how does legacy play its part in there? My experience says that there tends to be a belief that as soon as you start talking about anything with the word legacy, people believe that we are talking of the past and or of brands that have been around for a very long time. Um, it's not uncommon that when you say legacy, people say, I know what you're talking about, legacy brands, uh, which tends to be cold, uh, code rather for, oh yeah, these are very, very old and implicitly uh, not so relevant. But that in fact is not the focus of our research and writing. Uh, we're looking at legacy through a different lens as more of a forward-looking concept. Um, not so much legacy brands, um, as much as brands who are working on actively writing their legacy and creating their legacy every day as a perpetual concept of one that is in the making. Um, and in this context, the past is not an anchor that holds brands back. In fact, it becomes the compass that points brands forward. As you dig into the book, you'll see we tend to talk about five principles. Um, the short version goes something like this, that the ones who have this more progressive point of view on what legacy making looks like um, as a forward-looking concept, they take their work more personally. Uh, they think about the contributions they'll make to the world beyond just the profits they'll make. They think about behaving their beliefs, not just writing beautiful manifestos, but actually living by their words. They think about embracing the concept of influence and treating their customers like co-owners of the experience. They certainly think about competing in unconventional ways, not just being the best at what they do, but the only ones who do it. And finally, as I shared earlier, thinking in perpetual ways, um, that working and evolving has to become a habit, not a hobby, something that you do all the time. Interesting. So with all of that, how does brand voice play in that? People and companies work so hard to define their brand voice and each missive they send out, whether it's social media or whether it's press, they use that for defining and maintaining their brand. But how does that tie into legacy? Brands are very uh, prolific, as you know, at writing uh, beautiful sets of words, missions, visions, values of credos, manifesto, every word chosen uh, perfectly, every statement written and crafted beautifully. And people can recite them by memory, but it's not often uh, or not always the case that brands are acting uh, from those codes or credos or manifestos by heart. And so when we talk about brand voice, that we can judge our brand in a sense by closing our ears sometimes and observing and listening really with our eyes more than our ears to say, do the actions of a brand bespeak the words that they say are true to them? Um, I 
think that's how I tend to look at how modern legacy is manifested through voice. Do we behave our beliefs versus simply write stories that say these are our beliefs? Interesting. What what is an example of that that you might be able to call on? Oh, one of my absolute favorites is a brand in Nashville called the Bluebird Cafe. And if you're someone who loves music, as I know you are, and or someone who just loves watching some really good television, um, you may have come across the show Nashville at one point in time. Mm -hmm. The Bluebird Cafe is an amazing place. Um, if you ever have the chance to go, uh, as I said, if you're someone who loves music, um, you would really appreciate it. It started um, as a restaurant and bar. The Bluebird Cafe was, in fact, a cafe where what was being served on a regular basis would be the food and, and the drinks. Um, but they had a, a moment where some musicians had come in and created an experience where they positioned themselves in a circle and they sort of put on entertainment and something exceptional happened, which was all of a sudden, it wasn't a place that was serving up uh, food and beverage. It was a place that was giving an audience the opportunity to hear music, songwriters and their songs in a way that they would not normally ever get to experience. And so the whole orientation of the Bluebird Cafe became around the songwriters and their songs to the point that when you go there today, this amazing place with this iconic reputation is basically a hundred seat um, listening room in a strip mall. It has an outsized reputation, but the actual space is small. They could knock it down and put up a theater and make far more profit but the intention was to serve songwriters and their songs. Keeping it small like that allows the songwriters to have proximity to their audience for their music to be heard. Everything revolves around it. They're, they're so well uh, practiced um, in understanding what this is all about, that every choice and decision is through the lens of how would a songwriter feel about this? And if it serves the songwriter, they do it. And if it violates what a songwriter cares about, they do not. And as I said, it's, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity for most people to have the chance to occupy one of those hundred seats for a night. Um, and it's totally worth it. Well, would you say that most brands don't experience that type of authenticity? I think there are moments in every brand's uh, journey where we're faced with difficult decisions. And when the decision comes down to um, not just a little bit of success, but a little bit of failure and more to, if we make the wrong choice, we'll be out of business. And if we might make the right choice, we might sustain business. I think it is very tempting and understandable that most leaders in that situation make short-term moves to just make it through the moment. After all, if we can't make it through today, there is no tomorrow. And at the same time, I feel that what we've learned is that the leaders of organizations that stay vital have such a clear sense of where they wanna be, not just in a month or a year or three years, that they're not just trying to build their resume for the moment, but they're thinking about their legacy over a lifetime, their brand's legacy over a lifetime, that they're actually better equipped to make short-term decisions because those short-term decisions won't only get them through the moment. They won't only get them through the moment, let me say it again, they will also get them uh, to their long-term destination. Interesting. It reminds me of the Winston Churchill quote, um, success is not final and failure is not fatal. The idea is to keep moving forward. I, I think that is entirely um, 
not just inspirational, but very uh, relevant to the topic of legacy as a forward-looking concept, for sure. We were talking earlier about brands taking into consideration, you know, how they stand in terms of, you know, perpetuity and in terms of maintaining their authenticity and their purpose as they move forward. You had mentioned in the book a great story about Taylor guitars, and you had referenced Gibson as well. Could you go into that a bit, please? Yeah, um, I grew up in a family that had a, a great um, uh, deal of interest in music. Uh, my brother and sister and I all learned how to play um, at least piano. A couple of us have also learned to play a little bit of guitar. Um, and so given the opportunity to explore this uh, subject matter, I certainly want to look at companies, uh, brands in the space as well. And one of the things that I learned through my work uh, that would not be surprising is that it is not uncommon that in the lifetime of a brand, once the founders move on, a certain generation of leaders often come in that don't have the same buy-in or interest as the founders in the governing dynamics of why an organization was started. And instead they start looking at things like uh, the profit imperative. How do we get the greatest amount of profit out of this organization? And whether we, you mentioned Gibson, Steinway is another brand. These very famous brands that consumers have tremendous uh, passion for, at some point in their life, wind up with a group of leaders who say, well, what if we could sell more of this brand at more profit by taking cost out of the system? Customers still get the name, they still get Steinway, they still get Gibson, um, but we can save ourselves some dollars in doing it and we wind up as being more profitable. And at various points in time throughout the history of the two companies that I mentioned, Steinway and Gibson, um, that's been noticed by consumers. Uh, they notice when the experience isn't the same. They notice when the quality isn't the same. I'm sure the brand name has tremendous value for them, um, but the name serves a higher purpose, which is it's a statement about what a company cares for. And if what you care about first and foremost is profit at all costs, then the sacrifice is you're going to lose some customers along the way. Uh, to be uh, transparent, I think Steinway is a wonderful brand. To be transparent, I think Gibson is a wonderful brand. Um, I've been an owner of a hummingbird for a number of years, and I think that company has sort of come through some of its hardest periods to get back to a better place. But compare and contrast that with Taylor Guitars. So Taylor Guitars, um, probably the most successful maker of acoustic guitars in America right now, um, started primarily by two co-founders, uh, Bob Taylor and Kurt Lustig, um, with a strong sense of what they were trying to achieve, build guitars that had incredible playability and do it in a sustainable way. Now they haven't sacrificed profit. They are a very profitable company, but they always ask themselves a key question. Will they be happy with the choices they make in 10 years from now? And if they will be happy, they will make investments. And if they won't be happy, then they don't make those investments. What I love best about the Taylor story is that in the founder's lifetime, they actually went out and found a successor who sees the world like they do. His name is Andy Powers. Andy's responsibility is to not just sell more tailors at lower quality for a higher price. It's not a profitability imperative. He has the same values and mission as Bob and Kurt. More playable guitars, more sustainable guitars. And already in Andy's tenure, he's innovated 
the way that Taylor makes guitars. He innovated B-class bracing as compared with the usual X-class bracing. And nobody looks at that as a less good Taylor because he changed it. It's he understood the history and used it as a compass to point that brand forward. And when Andy moves on, he will pick a successor and make sure that he or she has similar values about Taylor as well. It's planned succession. It's, it's, a, it's a very inspiring story to me. Oh, that doesn't happen very often. No, at, at a certain point in time, uh, people become focused on other priorities. At a certain point in time, people think about making the greatest amount of profit. Um, at a certain point in time, you have people who just feel like um, I'm going to do my three years and what I'm doing is managing my resume. And when the goals become nothing more than short-term focused, profit for the moment, resume for the moment, wanting to be famous myself, not carrying forward a tradition, um, it, it leads you into a universe where you know, you're not managing for the long term, you're only managing for the moment. And that could be very problematic, particularly when times are tough, when unexpected conditions happen, recessions, pandemics, and so forth. Well, in the book, when you talk about money and purpose, you bring up Nick's Cosmetics. How is that an example of those two? Another one of my favorite stories, um, as part of the research at the opportunity to interview the founder of Nick's Cosmetics, and her name is Tony Co. Um, she's incredibly inspirational to me, as I know she is to many generations of people who follow her uh, brand story. And Tony is very passionate about saying, I bet you run into audiences who look at you and say, this is nonsense. This is about values above making money. And Tony is one of the wealthiest self-made women in America, even right now on Forbes list. And Tony will say quite passionately, you don't want to work for anyone who doesn't want to make money. And here's the point. Making money allows brand leaders and brands to pursue and sustain the things they really care about. So this notion that you can choose between doing good and having a purpose or making money, making the greatest amount of profit is a false choice. There's a large generation of people who are succeeding wildly inclusive of Tony, including uh, Bob and Kurt over Taylor Guitars, who make a tremendous amount of money by leading with their values, that profit follows a pursuit of the values and beliefs. Interesting. So there's that brings up the section of the book you have about a, a Japanese concept called Ikigai. How does all that tie together uh, when you're looking at money and purpose and uh, again, building this legacy? There's a brand that I've had a personal interest in for a number of years, and the brand is called the Two Bit Circus. One of the founders of the brand is Brent Bushnell. And if you explore his story, you'll find out that he's a part of the family uh, that helped to pioneer, innovate, or create the Atari brand. So he's had innovation in his blood, in his genes, in his heart for a number of years. And Two-Bit Circus was his manifestation, his expression of what technology meant for him and the world he was living in. Um, it's fundamentally a brand that invests in uh, the concept of STEAM learning, effectively STEM, plus the letter A for STEAM, which adds art into it as well. And so he's bringing technology and entertainment together to make it highly accessible to a generation of young learners um, in the form of entertainment. Um, like I said, fa fascinating brand, fascinating story. And when I asked uh, Brent how he found his reason for being, 
he shared a lesson that was once shared with him by a friend. And he said, have you heard about the concept called Ikigai? Um, with, a, with apologies, sometimes I say it like a Canadian, Ikigai, but I believe the correct pronunciation is in fact um, Ikigai. Uh, it does stand for reason uh, for being, as in what is your reason for being? And it says that you can find your reason for being by asking yourself four simple questions. Uh, one, what do you love? Two, what are you good at? Three, what does the world need more of? And four, therefore, what could you make uh, money at? What could you charge for? And he had a really persuasive way of bringing this to life where he said, as as adults, um, as experienced leaders of organizations, uh, as parents, we often tell a young generation, follow your heart, find something you love, and just do that. And if you follow the Ikigai model, one of the ingredients, of course, is, well, if you love it, but you can't be paid for it, it's probably not something that can be sustained over time. And in his own way, he was implicitly saying, the guidance of only follow your heart uh, might be bad guidance if you also can't sustain it by being paid for it. In many ways, very consistent with Tony Co. you want to work for someone who makes money because you can take that money and invest in your values, your beliefs, your workforce, and so on. Um, he also had a funny anecdote as well, which is telling someone to do something they love if they're not good at it is also not a recipe for success. And I just love the simplicity of the model. It's not something that we wrote. It's not something that Brent wrote. If you find the topic interesting, there's no shortage of reading uh, to be done and writing on, on that topic um, that I think is very worthwhile. But whether as an individual and your daily pursuits or as an experienced or up and coming professional and your business pursuits, asking and answering those questions, what do you love? What are you good at? What does the world need more of? And therefore, what can I be paid for? Is probably good guidance to get you in the ballpark of an idea that might sustain over a long time. Interesting. That's brilliant. So uh, a quick question as we're discussing all this, you know, you, you had dedicated the book to those who believe the greatest legacies are forever works in progress. It seems sometimes that legacy is not at the forefront of a lot of brands minds. Uh, for, for certain. And um, in part uh, with regard to the conversation we had right off the top or right near the top, it's because I think there's a generation that says legacy is old, legacy is what I leave behind, legacy is an assessment that others will make about the work that I've done when I've moved on or the life that I've lived once I've moved on. Um, and I think that could contribute to saying, so it really doesn't matter what I do in this moment because at some point people will make an assessment over the totality of things I've done someday, one day, not my responsibility. And I just think that's counter to the people who say, live every day like the actions that you take contribute to the story that you're telling about your life, your brand or your business. Uh, the foreword of our book is written by Yvonne Chouinard. He's the founder of Patagonia. He loves to climb mountains, he's a mountain climber. And he has a perspective that he would like the people who climb after him to be able to enjoy the experience just like he did or just like he does. And as a result of that, he wants to create a business or a brand that moves through the world without leaving a trace. Now, is Patagonia a successful brand? It certainly is. Um, does Patagonia lead with their values? They certainly do. 
And, and to be fair, this way of thinking is not for everyone. If you're in the business of just thinking about the moment, just want to launch your billion dollar unicorn, you want to build your resume, it's unfair to pass judgment. There are plenty of people who've succeeded at doing exactly that. And it makes sense to a lot of people. I feel that you can do all of those things more or less. Be famous, make a lot of money and make a contribution to the world we live in. And I think the distinction between the businesses that last and the ones that don't are they tend to be led by people who also believe that. That seems like a departure from the 80s and 90s that we've been through where profit was really the driving factor. And it seems more, I don't want to dwell on legacy as being old, but it does seem like a throwback concept. I think if we look at it in a conventional sense, 100%, we would say it is because it's a backward looking concept. Um, judge my success, but by all that I leave behind. I, I'm a graduate of a business school. If I sound like I have a Canadian accent, it's because I do. Um, I'm originally from Toronto. I went to business school in Toronto, Canada, the Schulich School of Business. They, they may be happy that I would say that. I hope they're happy that I might say that. <laughs> and I remember very early on a professor getting up and saying the responsibility of uh, business stakeholders to maximize shareholder revenue. The first question wasn't, what are your values? What are your beliefs? The question is, how much money are you going to make for your organization? That's what success is all about. If you have personal values and beliefs, save them for your personal life. And um, that sustained businesses to a point in time. The world has evolved. Um, there are plenty of organizations that say it's not profit or purpose. Both things can coexist. And increasingly, when we move through moments of pandemic, when I think people have to stop for a moment and think about what really does matter, I think there will be a growing reverence for organizations that have a consideration for adding value to our lives beyond just selling goods at a really good price. I think it's not a backward looking concept. I think it's the, um, the modern concept that best reflects the world and the times that we live in right now. It's a wonderful way to look at it. Mark, I want to close our discussion by talking about the example you have in your book with Apple and the Ritz-Carlton and what they've learned from their leadership center. It's really fascinating. I think there'd be a number of people who if you said, what is the Ritz-Carlton? What do they make? What are they all about? That the answer would be some version of they're a hotel company. They're in the travel and leisure business. If you ask the people who help to create it and the people who help to sustain it, they will tell you that culture is their product, their internal culture. And if you ask them in a hundred years from now, what do they hope will sustain about the Ritz-Carlton? Their answer is most likely to be, there may be hotels, there may not be hotels, but in whatever product or service we manifest in the world, you can expect a certain approach to the way we treat human beings that again, our, our culture, our approach to generosity and reciprocity, to anticipating human desires and, and meeting them or exceeding them before people even ask, that that is the heart of what this brand is all about. They believe so strongly in it and they practice it so diligently that as you said, in fact, they do have a leadership center where brands from around the world come and learn the story about how they created culture and how they've sustained it over many years. Um, one of the great, 
stories that's often told in relation to the leadership center is at a point in time, there was a group or a team from Apple that went to the leadership center, learned how Ritz Carlton thinks about customers and as a consequence of it, manifested or created a product or service that today we know is the genius bar. Um, with of course, tremendous credit to Apple for a reinterpreting and translating and, and innovating. But it goes to show that a brand that perceptually we might say, well, that's an older hotel company is actually a timeless company embracing values that may manifest, manifest differently over time, but will manifest persistently over time. When I asked the folks who lead um, the leadership center, uh, their observations about the brands and the companies that pass through. They say it's always very enlightening because the room lights up when the subject is about culture. The people want to roll up their sleeves or lean in and say, let's talk about this. This is really important. And when they do the follow-ups with those organizations to say, well, how did it go? Did you apply this learning? That almost without fail, it's the thing to get most excited about and the hardest thing to change. Because like so many things, the care and nurture of culture can't be a hobby that's practiced for a day, a week, or month, or a year. It takes a lifetime commitment. It really is this notion of in the making, every day, constant commitment and recommitment. Organizations that start with a clear sense of culture are better able to sustain it over time. Organizations that had a clear sense of culture and lost it, you know, if you can, if you can trim the things that have gotten in the way and get back to your sense of why did we build this thing to begin with, then, then you do have a good compass point. But it is very hard to start a company by saying, goal number one, make a billion dollars. Goal number two, so what kind of company do we want to be? I think somewhere you need a stronger sense of we're trying to contribute something here more than just making money. And like the questions in Ikigai, if you know what you love and what you're good at and what the world needs more of, there's a good chance that you might be able to charge a premium for that and make some good money at that as well. Well, Mark, I, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. I've been talking with Mark Miller, who with Lucas Conley wrote the book Legacy in the Making, building a long-term brand to stand out in a short-term world. Mark, I really appreciate your opinions, your perspective, and uh, I've learned a lot. So thank you so much for spending the time. Thank you for uh, having me in your program. It's been wonderful. Thank you for joining us for this episode. To find out more about our upcoming webinars and events, please go to thinkla.org. You'll also find information on membership and how we continue our mission of serving the Los Angeles advertising, marketing, and media community. Take care. Thank you.